I am Plata on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia, at thecommentary.ca. Russell Wangerski joins me now. He's just published a memoir, Same Ground, Chasing Family Down the California Gold Rush Trail. It's a chronicle of a car trip he and his wife, the writer Leslie Renhoek, made following in the uh, footsteps of uh, the cross-continent journey Russell's ancestor, William Castle Dodge, made in search of gold in 1849. Being Canadian gives Russell a great perspective into America as he travels in search of uh, the bucolic wonders that are still there, but family, as it were. I'll ask Russell about his connection to Castle as well uh, just what he wanted to get out of this trip. We meet Castle in the book, who was just 22 years old, as Russell quotes extracts from a diary. It's a diary that fascinated Russell's father, even though uh, this was uh, an ancestor on uh, Russell's mother's side. The journey, 160 years uh, or so later, is uh, as fascinating as the one during the gold rush as we see middle America in all its forms, culturally, politically, socially, economically, as it were. Russell Wangerski is... uh, the award-winning writer of seven books of fiction and non-fiction, including Burning Down the House, World Away, and The Hour of Bad Decisions. He is um, editor-in-chief of the Regina Leader Post and the Saskatoon Star Phoenix. The website for more is at russellwangerski.com. This book is published by ECW Press. He joined me from uh, Saskatoon 10 days ago. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Russell Wangerski. Mr. Wangerski, good morning. Morning. Thanks for joining us. I guess it's afternoon where you are. Um, the, the question that I'm sure a lot of people ask before we get into the book is, how, how do you find time to write a book when you're writing two newspapers as you are? Well, there's nights and weekends. Uh, the other thing is this book has taken a lot longer than it usually takes me to write a book. It's taken me about six years to actually get from the research stage to, to this fall is actually getting it done. started in 2016, so... Usually, if I'm working on a, a novel or a collection of short stories, it takes me about two years. Mm-hmm. So that may be partially the reduction in time. It's also the sort of the size of the project. It was bigger than I thought. It, it, it's such a, a fascinating book because it, it's quite a dense book in terms of, um, say, the, the history of uh, William Castle Dodge, um, the, um, the, the journey itself that you have to take. I mean, how long did it take you to do, say? Well, it ended up being three separate research trips, one in 2016, one in 2017, and one in 2019, and altogether, we were on the road for about uh, seven to eight weeks. Now, in those those three separate trips... um, because what's fascinating is, is as you travel, it's not just the journey, if you will. It's it's all the other stuff that happens. Um, it's fascinating to see America where it is at that moment. Um, were, were you, because from from up here in Canada, we, we have our opinions about what's happening in the United States. Um, when you're there, though, um, it must be something different altogether. And, and, and can you see what... Can you understand, say, Russell, why the country is the way it is today? I think the biggest thing um, is something we noticed even in, in 2016. During the, uh, and, and at that point, Trump hadn't even been elected yet. Uh-huh. But one of the things uh, my wife Leslie was really interested in is she wanted she was born in the States, uh, grew up, went to high school there. Um, she wanted to see um, how, how the U.S. presidential election was being reflected in people what their conversations were like in, say, a coffee shop or a bar or anywhere else like that. But the thing we found quickly was 
American politics had proceeded to a point where you don't talk politics in public anymore. Um, it's too contentious if you're on different sides. If we, uh, Democrats don't talk to Republicans about politics in a restaurant or a bar because things get too heated too quickly. In all of that travel, the only politics we ever heard discussed at all was between a couple of young men in a in a in a in a bar, and they dispose of it in about 15 minutes. And once in a breakfast joint uh, in Nevada, where the basic whole discussion was, I don't like either of them, and I won't vote for either of them, and that was it. You know, yeah. so I think one of the things that is the most startling right, for Canadians is to see a land where individuals have set their own boundaries because there's no winning, there's no gain to talking about politics at, in, at, in the states right now. Yeah, I mean, there's what you mentioned your wife Leslie. There's a moment in the book though. I, I can't remember where you were. Um, I think it was somewhere in Illinois. Uh, it was the, the morning after Phyllis Schlafly had died. Um, I'm, oh, yes. not, I'm not going to repeat yeah. what she said, but um, um, you, you can if you wish. Um, the, <laughs> it, it says something about because uh, because you say in that in that part of the book that that she she grew up there, she left at 18 because of people like Schlafly, right? And and what was happening in the country and the, and, and sort of the the views that uh, that Schlafly espoused were, were getting a foothold in that country. That, that's what drove mm-hmm. her out, right? Yes. Yeah. It's- and I mean, it was the, you know, it was the defeat of the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, you know, Leslie in high school had visions of, of the horizons being open to anything, to being an astronaut, a scientist. And all of a sudden there was a ri- uprise of people saying, you know, uh, where you really should be is home and pregnant and taking care of the family. And it was jarring for her then. And it was jarring for her in St. Louis when Phyllis uh, Lafley died. Uh, it was. Uh, I won't repeat it either. But it w- it's in the book, and it uh, it was colorful. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. Um, what was it like though? In, when when she says what she says, and and um, because everybody's you know sitting behind a newspaper, and this is the headline on, on the front page, um, and she says what she says, and it's it's within earshot of some of the other people in the restaurant. Oh yes, it, well, well, it was in a Denny's, and uh-huh. uh, among other things, she she said she was glad that. Shafley was dead. Um, and you could see, you know, newspapers trembling around the <laughs> Denny's as, as we proceeded to eat our breakfast and Leslie not finish her not very good grits. It was not a, it was, I was glad to get out of Denny's. I thought, you know, we could be accosted by several people with canes, walkers, and violent intent. <laughs> um, this brings up the, the food on the road. Um, I happen to, to, to find uh, American cuisine not not just interesting, but this, uh, most of the time enjoyable. Um, did, did you find it the same way? I mean, were, were you looking forward to the meals that you'd have on the road? We were and we weren't. I mean, basically, it, it was a strange trip for travel. We would drive until we were too tired to drive, and then we would stop, and we wouldn't pre-plan what town we'd be in or what hotel we'd be staying at or what restaurant we'd eat at. Um, there was excellent food. Uh, there was not as excellent food. One thing that there was always in, in common between everywhere is something we came <laughs> to describe as the American portion and the American poor. Um, mm. 
portions in American restaurants are big. Yeah. It's just, I mean, finishing, you know, three weeks in a row of restaurant meals in the United States, and you feel like you've eaten the world. And alcoholic drinks, I mean, here, you know, you ask for a gin and tonic, and it's measured. Um, you get an ounce and a half, and then the tonic gets poured in. But in the States, it's often poured freehand, and holy cow, your idea of how many drinks you have and what kind of effect it's going to have on you, mm-hmm. very, very different. But, the, I mean, we were spoiled in some ways because you get into a small town with a, uh, a well-established mom-and-pop Mexican restaurant, and, you know, you would eat like you wouldn't pay dearly for it just to experience Um empanadas um, it's just a, I mean it, it's a fantastic conglomerate of different foods and all of them quite wonderful there's also stuff that, that that's surreal in the book um, and, and not just some of the people that you meet but uh, there's a moment there where they're in the middle of nowhere there's a subway and nothing else um, yes there are moments like that that, that um, if, you, if you wrote it in a movie say some people wouldn't believe seeing some of the things you saw. Well, I mean, that subway in the middle of nowhere was just on the side of the road. I think that was in Nebraska. I can still picture it because there was a funeral home nearby. But, I mean, it was 112 degrees. We got out of the car. We were melting. Uh-huh. And then you walk into this subway where there's one man making uh, turkey bacon subs, and it's practically freezing inside. The air conditioning is on so high. And it, it, it's just sort of like you're, you know, it is, it is as if you came upon it in a desert and walked inside, and here was a guy serving sandwiches. And, I mean, the whole, the whole trip felt like that in different ways. You'd, you would trip over something, and you would go, was this just set up for us? Um, <laughs> you know, because, I mean, there, I don't know. Uh, there's one part where we were in the desert, um, in the western desert north, slightly north of where Burning Man was. And uh, I saw something that looked like a truck in the distance. And this is in the desert. There's sage, dirt roads. Uh, we passed a sign that says, if your car breaks down, stay with the car so we can find your body because your cell phone doesn't work. Yeah. And there's no emergency services. And we drove up to this, what looked like a truck. And what it was was a Bureau of Land Management uh, wilderness cabin where if you're the first one there, you just say, okay, it's mine for the night. You can't book it. You can't reserve it. There's no, nothing to even say it exists anywhere. But you go inside, and not only is it this cabin in a place so dark at night that you can't see your hand in front of your face, but people had left things in the cabin. You know, there was, there was a can of tuna. There was paper towel. There was... There was a note in the logbook that said, just dropped off firewood for the stove. And, you know, we just tripped over it. And then, you know, Leslie read back through the logbook, and it was full of people who had done exactly the same thing, who had just tripped over this place lost in the middle of nowhere and then stayed the night and often then tried to come back and repeat the experience if they could get there when there was no one there. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the whole the trip felt like that. I mean, we would get lost and turn up in some place we had never imagined going, and it would be astounding. 
Um, the, the, the impetus for, for, for this trip was, was um, to um, follow the journey of your, your ancestor, William Castle Dodge. Um, you, the, you mentioned your father, um, who told you, I guess, was it from an early age that you should read this diary? After my first book came out, my dad said, now, you have to remember, too, this, William Castle Dodge is my mother's great-grandfather yeah. and my great-great-grandfather, but not, re- not a relative of my father's directly except by marriage. My father had tripped over the diary and had in, in, uh, in-laws possession and said, you know, let me retype it from the handwriting. Let's clean it up, get rid of some of the errors. And he said to me, um, you should do something with this diary. You know, you're you're published now. You should find a way to get this diary published. I said, sure, sure, Dad, sure. He said, no, it's really interesting. And what I didn't realize, of course, at the time was that William Castle Dodge was 22 years old mm-hmm. because he writes as if he's in his 40s. Um, and in, in terms of detail and what he sees is important. And, that, you know, there's some things about us that are a 22-year-old who, you know, I'm going to go across the country and everyone's going to, oh, my family will be yeah. rich. It's sort of his starting attitude. But Dad always wanted me to do something with the book, and I never did until after he passed away. And then I realized what a sort of jewel it was, um, because no one had ever seen it, and yet it was so amazing. And he had tried so hard to get it out there, to get other people to see it, to get it to be a part of, of, of history. And uh, I guess I let him down. What, what did you ever talk to him about why he devoted so much time and interest to it? No, because my dad was a guy who spent a lot of time and interest on a whole bunch of things. Mm. Um, stamp collecting, reading. I mean, our house was packed full of books when I was growing up. He had he had very precise things that he'd been working on forever. He had uh, before the days of computers, he had a system of punch cards for keeping track of scientific journal articles that you might need in the future that you could slide knitting needles into the holes in the punch cards and pull up only the ones you want. They didn't have to be indexed. He would just, if it was on a certain set of topics, you put those three knitting needles in and up come the three references that meet those guidelines. So he was always doing um, intricate, careful, thoughtful things. So I don't think it would have jumped out at me in any in any way that he was spending so much time on the diary. Um, to, to Dodge and and what drew him west, I, I, I guess um, there were tens of thousands of people that went west like he did. Um, what was he looking for? I mean, other than say the, the chance to to make a fortune. I mean, I guess that's what motivated a lot of people to go west, right? Yeah, there was that. There was that. I think there's also pretty clearly. Um, an element that it was a lark, uh, that he and the group of friends he had who had formed the, this company to go to go west saw it all as a great adventure. And, you know, it, it wasn't very long into the trip after they had gotten away from stagecoaches in St. Louis and started to go north that he began to realize that, you know, people were dying regularly on the side of the trail that they saw graves every day. Yeah. And then as he went along, his life was in risk in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, and, and, you know, in some ways you think he was pretty lucky to have survived the trip at all. 
when you're counting influenza and your starvation and scurvy and everything else that came along with a foot trek across the Western U.S. before it was even the Western U.S. Um, but I think that that's where the sort of the 22-year-old side came in with this was a great adventure and also it had the bonus of his belief that he would be rich. So in terms of the planning um, that, that you did for, for retracing this journey, um, was it a lark that got it started on, on your part, say? Well, it started without enough planning, for sure. <laughs> we were equal on that front. Um, it wasn't until we were actually in, in Winnipeg at a McNally Robinson that my wife Leslie actually picked up a highway atlas for the trip. We didn't plan on stopping anywhere. We didn't, you know, we didn't have a, a route beyond the actual route of the California Trail uh-huh. and the subtrails. There's, there's half a dozen or more subtrails, cutoffs, they were called. It shortened the distance. So, you know, my idea was basically we would, we would uh, get to Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, which was where Dodge started, and we would start there and take the same route. And, I mean, there were things that, that, that didn't occur to me <laughs> But which is certainly the case, which is that, you know, in, in 1849, after St. Joseph, Missouri, there, are no, there were no towns. Mm. There was a trail. So following a route, like up until that point, we'd been pretty clear. You know, you could say, oh, this is Evanston. Evanston's in the diary. And, and Dodge was really good about saying, you know, that we passed through this town. It was nice. It was not nice. I hated it. We went on. Um, but after St. Joseph, it's more like we saw a funny red mountain that looked like a volcano. Well, that might have been a help on a, on a demarcated trail in 1849, but uh-huh. <laughs> not, not, not in 2016 when you're trying, you know, when you get past St. Joseph and you're looking for, you know, the Platte, North, North Platte River or you're looking for elements of it. And there, after that, you know, I mean, there were three forts that he could have stopped at. He stopped at two of them and skipped the third. Yeah. Um, the, by the way, the, the, what, what did this all cost you in terms of, of say, because, um, I mean, you, you, you both aren't traveling uh, fancy. You, it's a rented car, and, and you're, not st- you, you're not staying at, at say, five-star places along the way. I mean, the, the, probably not very many of them along the way, right? No, no, no. And, I mean, we were basically staying in the cheapest motel, and we had actually a sort of a parlor game that we played. We take turns day by day to see who could get the, the best rate. Mm-hmm. We had no data plan on our phone, so we would just light up into Expedia, see the cheapest rate at the hotel we were going in to, and whosever turn it was would go in and say, okay, what's your best price? Yeah. And normally they'd beat Expedia. And, but, no, it was, it was an expensive prospect. I'd look back, Looking back on it now, loosely at the receipts, I'd say it probably cost about $17,000. I see. And, you know, that's one of the problems in trying to do nonfiction in Canada is uh, book contracts are small. Um, Research is expensive. You look at some of the, you know, the best nonfiction writers in Canada, like Charlie Foran, who wrote the Mordecai Rickler biography, and he's basically said, I can't afford to do nonfiction anymore. I take too much of a loss. And, you know, he had a, a best-selling book about Mordecai Rickler and won awards across the country and hasn't, to the best of my knowledge, done nonfiction since, simply because the risk is so high and the expense is so high. 
So knowing that, why did you do it? I mean, was was there something that you were looking for in terms of, of your own self or a connection to the past, say, even? I was looking in the past for something more like, it's sort of a strange thing. I mean, my family started in the United States. My parents moved to Halifax with us three kids, and that was it. That was the whole family. Uh, Christmas was us. Uh, we would occasionally see cousins and aunts and uncles, but I couldn't find them now if you asked me to. And yet, when I married Leslie, her family is, like, huge and involved and connected. And when one cousin starts telling a story, another cousin tells another piece of it, the third cousin has an ending to it, and then they agree that they can disagree. But it's all interconnected, and they, they can go far away in the country and come back to Winnipeg, which is sort of the, the central core of, of the family, and... and pick up exactly where they left off. And I never, I had never had that experience. And I thought in the sense that maybe I could capture strangely across 165 years, something of a sense of family. Mm -hmm. And uh, I won't let on how that turned out, but it was a sort of an extreme reason to, to take that, to take that trip as well. And, and what were you hoping to see after 160 years? Because obviously a lot has changed physically to the land itself. Um, I, I guess the, the, one of the, the, the fascinating parts as I'm reading the book is, is it's, it's wonderful when you're at a place that Dodge once was and you see something that he saw. I mean, what did that feel yeah. like? Well, it was, yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was astounding. I mean, there were a couple of places where you knew, um, just based on sheer geography, um, there's a spot in the, at the top of the Fandango Pass where he had written a little diary entry where he said, I looked behind me and I could see the Alkali Lake, and I looked in front of me from the top of Fandango Pass, and I could see um, I could see Goose Lake in California. Well, we went to the top of the Fandango Pass, and there's literally a space about the size of a coffee table, depending on your physical height. I'm, you know, five, I don't know, five, six, but there's, there's a spot the size of a coffee table where you can actually put your feet and see those two things at the same time. And, and there is also a trail marker there for the trail, and you know right where you are. And you could just move your feet until you were right in the spot where you could see both without without moving. And that was the spot. Um, and the other thing is, all across the western United States, little sections of the trail pop up again. Mm. Um, all of those wagons going through that territory cut up the land quite tremendously. Sometimes they left trails that haven't filled in because it's in deserts and areas of, uh, of sage and and the, gra the root structure just has not recovered. In, in, in other places, um, in Nebraska, for example, there are places where the, you can see how the vegetation changed after the tracks filled in again. So it's actually a different color of plants. Now, you, sometimes you need a little help to see that. Like sometimes you, you need to catch it in the right light, and then all of a sudden you can see the line, or you can go back and look at it in satellite photographs, and you can see the the trail clear as a bell on the satellite pictures. But it, it, it is an astounding leap to go over that many years and to be able to, to know that you're, you're taking the same route or you're at the same spot. And there were some really big geographic features mm -hmm. that also helped, like Independence Rock, 
mm. which when you see it, you know exactly what it is you're coming up to. You don't even have to get there and see the signs. You go, this is the only thing that this could be a giant gray basaltic rock in the middle of the desert. Um, in, in terms of the diary itself that, 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 that he kept, what is that like to read? I mean, um, it's interesting as, as you reflect in, in one part of the book about how um, you, you're sort of reading between the lines, if you will, about, about what he has to say. Um, I, I keep forgetting that he's 22 years old as when, when, I, when I read um, the extracts that you publish in the book. Um, is he a reliable narrator, say? Um, he's a reliable narrator to a point. I mean, he has some biases that are, are pretty clear. He has some expectations. He was from a relative, relatively well-off family studying to be a lawyer. He was later a publisher of a paper in the Midwest. He was the clerk of the House of Representatives for a while. So he's not sort of your, your typical um, everyman in the United States. So you have to take that into account a bit, and you also have to think about the age he was in and the biases that were pretty clearly evident. I mean, he has some pretty harsh language um, in parts of the book, in parts of the diary, uh-huh. but overall, he seems to, as he goes through the, as he goes through this whole trip, he seems to, to mellow, too, and he's, he can also really surprise you with how forward-thinking he is about things like slavery. When he's just leaving St. Louis, and, and what he thinks the role of slavery in the United States is. Did you keep a diary? Um, I, I would assume you did, um, so that you know you, you'd have this to look back on as you were writing this book. Um, I'm wondering how you remembered everything. I worked on it. I, I, it's not so. I didn't so much use a diary. Uh, I diarized. Mm. But what I would do is I would basically, I kept a notebook with me in the car so that if Leslie was driving, I would take notes. But all of the notes and subsequently the notes that I would write up in the evening on the computer um, were aid memoirs. I mean, things to remind me of things because there's just no capturing at all. I wouldn't, you know, they would end up being five, six pages that in the diary would accompany, would would expand into 20 to 25 in the the actual book would be 20 to 25 pages so I would keep things that I wanted to remember about the story and I would keep things I want to remember about the journey and tons and tons of photographs which is a huge help as well there's a great part in the book where where you write a letter essentially to your kids about about the stuff that you're leaving behind in, in your house what not to throw out and why um I, I just found it so fascinating, and I'm, I'm still thinking about it a, a, few, a couple of days after reading it. Um, it sort of comes out of nowhere in the book. Was it was it on purpose, say? Eh? Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, one of the things, I mean, in, in the sense that ties in loosely with my, my father and mother, too. My dad passed away, and a, and a few years later, my mom did as well. And myself and my two brothers had to empty a house. Yeah. Um, without knowing the history of everything in the house anymore. And when both your parents pass away, you lose the ability all of a sudden to ask. Sure, yeah. You know, like, you know, if you think you have something right and you're not sure, you could always pick up the phone and phone your mother, you know, and she'll say, no, Russ, you're out to lunch. That didn't happen. Or she'll tell you, yes, it did. But when that's gone, then all you've got is the pieces you have left 
And, you know, there were things in the house that probably got thrown away or sold that shouldn't have been. Yeah. And the, it just occurred to me that, you know, here I am on a trip far away. You know, you don't know what you're, what life holds for you, whether you're even going to finish this trip, whether you're going to run into someone on the Dwight D. Eisenhower Highway because it's a crazy fast highway. Um, or get shot because there seem to be bullet holes everywhere in the United States. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, but so in a, in a sense, it's a kind of a tiny encapsulated um, will and testament to let them know there are things I should have told you that I didn't or I haven't yet. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's... Um it's it's something it's a part of the book that it hits you in in, in a way that that makes you think that you should do the same, um, and not necessarily take a journey as as you did and write about it, but but maybe uh, leave behind some some context, if you will, to the stuff that we all accumulate. Um, yeah, Con- the, context is an excellent word. Yeah, the the people that you meet along the way, um, a lot of them are memorable. I, I'm sure to you, um, even even to us, the reader. Um, inevitably they ask you what you're doing and, and why you're in a particular place at a particular time. Um, what I found fascinating is that, that um, it was almost a, a, a pre... The, the question itself was a preamble to their own, I guess, statement of why they're there and their own journey. I mean, it, that's a fascinating thing about travel, isn't it? That it, this, is, this is the way we talk to one another or... or we we find it a way to talk to one another, just to talk to people itself uh, is to ask one question, and, and, and inevitably yeah. it's a question that you want to answer. Say, yeah, and and I think part of it too is is that we're all trying to, even in the world where we're only supposed to have six degrees of separation, people are looking for a connection between each other. Yeah. So when you say you know I'm doing this and this is what happened, uh, or why I'm doing that, you know. And you got to remember the perfect. This said the, this book had the perfect end to every conversation. When someone says, "Where are you from?" and you're putting your driver's license on the counter in, in Arizona, and it says Newfoundland, and they go, "Where the heck is Newfoundland?" <laughs> right? Uh, so that's always a great opener. It was you know, where where are you from? But when you when you tell a story to someone about being a gold miner or being this or being that or following at gold miners route, they have family stories too, and then they start to tell you them. And, you know, they can be anything from a man we met in Omaha whose uh, great-grandfather, he went looking for his great-grandfather in the Balkans, uh, his, you know, the history of his great-grandfather, and found people who knew his great-grandfather was astounded by the fact that they knew details that he knew but hadn't told anyone. Mm. So all of a sudden he felt attached to them. Or people, another woman in uh, in uh, Lava Hot Springs told us about how she, uh, her family had invented Shellville. They, well, had established Shellville. And I thought, oh, it's a town with shells. You know, like yeah. Shellville is because they're, I mean, maybe, maybe the shells are their main interest. No, no. The town was called Shellville, but their name was Shell. S-C-H-E-L-L, so it was their own town, Shellville, but the U.S. Postal Service dropped the C, and after that it became Shellville. But she had a whole uh, litany of her family starting one town, moving to another, Revolutionary War soldiers burning down their mill, and, uh, you know, and 
sometimes it's as simple as you say, I'm from Canada, and someone will say, have you been to Winnipeg? And you say yes. And they used to say, well, I, I went to Winnipeg for the most amazing car show, you know. So, But I think it's, a, it's all a part of reaching out and being connected to each other, and I think that's sort of a basic human need. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. Um, it, it, after re- re- retracing the steps and, and, and going on the same ground, as it were, as, as Dodge, do, do you find that you like him? Yeah, I do. Um, I kind of, I like him in a point of time. Uh-huh. You know, I think in this, it, it, it's strange. Having kids my own that are older than that now, I find myself thinking about Dodge at 22 the way I think about them at 22. That it was, you know, it was a uniquely positive time where nobody's been really ground down by being, you know, working for years trying to get, trying to pay a mortgage or trying to do this. Like he feels to me less like a great great grandfather and more like a kid who's grown up now. Mm. And uh, and I really like him in that in that role. Do you think your dad would have liked this book? Yes. Yeah, I do. And that makes me happy to a degree. It would have been nicer if I had written it sooner. Yeah, yeah I, I can't tell you how much I'm enjoying it. And I, I did think about him a couple of times as I was reading it and thinking how, how much he would have um, um, just reveled in talking to you about it after reading it. Um, yeah, I think that's true. And, and, I, and I guess in, in, in a way proud perhaps that, that uh, he finally took it on. Well, I hope so. Yeah. Um, I can't tell you how much I'm enjoying the book and, and uh, have enjoyed our chat today. Congratulations on the book and continued good luck with it, Russell. Thanks for your time today. Thank you very much for yours. Have a good day. The website for more is at russellwangerski.com. The book is called Same Ground, Chasing Family Down the California Gold Rush Trail. It's published by ECW Press. It's author Russell Wangerski. Join me on the line from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plunton.